Father in heaven, we love you, and we come into this Sunday morning with joyful expectation to celebrate the good news of Christmas. Help our hearts and our minds be open to this story anew. God, that we would be hearing it as if for the first time, and that it would stir our hearts and our love and our admiration and our worship of you as never before. God, that we would be ready and willing to change, to respond, to worship you, God, in a manner that brings you the glory that you so richly deserve. Father, we know that's only possible with hearts that come ready to submit to this holy and sacred word. May we see it as this timeless and ancient truth that has changed generation after generation. Father, may we be willing to accept it and listen and submit to it in a way that helps us to find your good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. We thank you, Father, for this time. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for the meaning and the gift of Christmas and the birth of a Savior. For it's in the spirit of Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, church family. Hope everyone's doing well. As you can see, and you heard Caroline reference this past Friday, uh, we had our fun little musical Hope Was Born, which was a great time, and uh, we decided to go ahead and leave a lot of the stuff set up just because it fits with the Advent theme and the Advent season, and so uh, let's not... Uh, rush to take it down, but enjoy it. So uh, I hope you all uh, can enjoy the manger scene behind me, and I do think it will be applicable for today's message. I, I want to begin by telling you a story. It's a story I've, I think I've mentioned before, um, probably especially if you've been with us for any extended amount of time. I've, I've probably referenced it a couple years ago, but I'll, I'll kind of want to reiterate it again this morning because I think it applies. But it, it dates back to 2010, the summer of 2010 in August. It was uh, the morning of August 12th, 4.15 a.m., and Jennifer wakes me up, and she says, Jeremiah, I think it's time. So I jump out of bed, and I immediately have that, like, nervous excitement and energy go and grab the overnight bag that we had packed and help her to the car and have this just crazy heart-racing experience as we start to drive to the hospital, but I'm trying to stay calm externally, so I've got my hands firmly placed at 10 and 2 to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong on the way to the hospital. And so we get to the hospital, and as we get um, to, the, to the place, you know, get checked in and evaluated, we're, we're thinking, it's here, it's finally time, um, only to have the doctors come back and say, actually, no, it's not. It's, it's not time. Uh, you need to go on home. And so we were a little disappointed, obviously, but also confused, didn't really know how to make sense of that. We'd never done this before, and so we went back home and waited, and uh, the discomfort for Jennifer only continued, uh, and so we gave it a little bit more throughout the rest of the day, got into the afternoon and thought, gosh, you know, contractions are still coming, they're intensifying, let's go back, let's, let's try again. So we go back to the hospital, and this time they do admit us, which was, you know, good news, but what we discovered is that one of the main reasons they did admit us was because she was running a fever, and they wanted to monitor that. And so it wasn't exactly uh, great news. It was, you know, one little side point for concern, but nothing that we dwelled on too much in the moment. So I started texting family, you know, letting folks know that we were in the hospital, the time was getting closer, and so my family started driving in from Abilene, hers from Oklahoma, and uh, you know, it was just filled with so much joyful anticipation. I mean, part of that was because we had waited for a long time uh, to get pregnant, well over two years, and now we were finally at this point where it was going to come to fruition. In addition to that, we had made the decision not to find out the gender of the baby, 
And so everyone was kind of eagerly awaiting to know, is it going to be a boy or a girl? There was just all this kind of joyful anticipation in the moment. And so I'm, I'm doing what, you know, I know to do, I guess, is try to provide these updates to family members as we're there in the hospital and kind of giving reports here and there. And uh, one of the things that I noticed as we were admitted was that the, the doctors would come in and check on Jennifer and the baby. Uh, the baby's heart rate kept kind of elevating, kept rising. And I could tell they were paying a certain level of attention to it, and that kind of registered another level of concern. I knew they were still looking at her because of her fever. And so there were some things that were being monitored. And so as I'm sharing these updates, all of a sudden I get a text back from my mom who's relaying a question from my stepfather, who's a pediatrician, right? So this is his arena, right? He, he knows about these moments. And so when she relays this question from my stepfather, it kind of elevates my concern because to give you context, growing up with my stepfather, I, I learned kind of how he responded in these situations. And what I recognize is that it didn't matter how you felt, if he knew it wasn't serious, he quickly would diagnose you and get you to move on, right? You could be in severe pain, you could be bleeding, you know, and you could be like, please help. And he's like, you're gonna be fine, put ice on it. And you'd be like, okay, and he was always right. Uh, what you had to be concerned about was when he started asking questions, right? Because when he started asking questions, you're like, oh man, he's like trying to solve something here. And that was always a telltale sign that something could be wrong. So when I get a text message with a question from my stepfather, I'm like, okay. And I don't remember the details of what his question was. It was some level that he wanted to know more about or wanted me to be watching. And so that kind of elevated the concern even further. And then, not too long after that, the doctors bring in a few additional people into the room, and I hadn't recognized them before. This wasn't a change of shift. These were new people. And as they were introduced to me, I found out that they were from the NICU. And that was another level of concern. And so I asked, I was like, well, are, are they going to be needed? And uh, one of the doctors said, well, we might have somebody here just in case the baby needs it. And that was the moment. Right? As soon as they said that, I, I didn't know if that was normal. Uh, I, I don't know how common that is even today. But in that moment was fear came in. Right? I mean, like fear had been lurking all along the way. It had kind of been around the corner. But that was the moment we really stepped into the room for me. And so right there with this joy was this other experience of fear where I started asking myself this question, is my baby going to be okay? Is my wife going to be okay? And not really knowing how to handle that and feeling the weight of both those emotions just right there side by side. So the time kind of progressed and wore on. I think we ended up uh, seeing that it lasted, what I think labor was close to around 30 hours of that kind of back and forth between joyful anticipation and fear of the unknown until finally on the morning of August 13th at 9.03 a.m., I heard my son's cries for the very first time. And the doctors gave him a quick evaluation, determined he was healthy, he was fine, that mom was healthy, so the NICU wasn't needed, and I saw the doctors lay my son in my wife's arms, and I was just overwhelmed with joy. And it was a joy I got to share. I got to walk down the hallway into the waiting room and tell all the family, we've got a beautiful baby boy. And the, the whole family just erupted with this joyful celebration. It was easily one of the greatest moments of my life. And so it's a story I think about often. I love to share it. And it can obviously provide a lot of different lessons. But the one that I would want to highlight for us this morning is that to me it really kind of demonstrates how often in life joy and fear are so closely there together. Right, could be a moment of great significance like the birth of a child, could be an insignificant moment, but a lot of times 
we're in these situations and circumstances where we're almost presented this choice of how we're going to react and navigate these moments. Will we choose fear or will we choose joy? Our life can be marked by either one of those situations. And so that's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. What typically marks your life? How do you typically navigate those situations? Do you demonstrate fear or joy? And when I say that question, I want us to think a little bit about what that means and the nuances of each of those emotions. Because a lot of times when we hear those words, we might picture just the extreme expression. You hear the word fear and you think of trembling and terror. You hear the word joy and you think about this elated, ecstatic celebration of laughter and smiles. And the reality is, is that both joy and fear can manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. I mean, think about fear and how it can materialize, how it can reveal itself in your life. Isolation, anxiety, depression, right? All those things really kind of have their source of fear, right? They find their origins in fear, fearful of what others think of you, fearful of what you think of yourself, fearful of the unknown, fearful of being alone. All those things can generate that sense of isolation, depression, anxiety, and it's rooted in fear. Think about anger and hostility, right? A lot of times we respond to someone or something with anger and hostility because we identify them as a threat, a threat to our life, a threat to our rights, a threat to our comfort, a threat to our dreams, whatever it may be. And so our response is that if we lose those things, if those rights are infringed upon, if those comforts are gonna be challenged or those values are gonna be taken away, then I'm gonna respond with anger and hostility, but it's all rooted in fear, fear of losing those things. Think about worry. And you spend time worrying about your job, worrying about your family, worrying about your spouse, worrying about your children, worrying about your parents, worrying about money, all these different things that we worry. It's rooted in fear, fear of loss of control, a fear of the unknown, a fear of uncertainty, a fear of harm. All of those things find their origins in fear. Fear manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Same can be said for joy, right? Joy is not just that elaborate celebration. Joy is, is absolutely found when we have good fortune and favorable things unfold, but joy also creates resiliency, doesn't it? Right? Joy can actually be found in hardship. Joy can be found in suffering because joy keeps you anchored. Joy allows you to see something beyond the unknown. It allows you to trust in a greater plan, a greater purpose. It allows you to endure even in difficult times. Joy can manifest itself with contentment, Right? When we're afraid of losing certain things or, or being deprived of certain things or wishing for certain things, joy keeps us anchored in reminding ourselves of what we do have and finding contentment in those things. So joy manifests itself in a lot of different ways as well. So which one marks your life? Is it fear or is it joy? And I present that question to you because it should take us to one of the primary messages that we find in the Christmas season when those angels declare to the shepherds, fear not, for I bring good news that will cause great joy. Now, what a beautiful message. And that's the desire for each of us, that our lives can be marked with joy rather than fear. And that's exactly what I want us to press into and lean into this morning and throughout the rest of the Advent season. So grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter two, and we'll take a look at this by completing our discussion on the Christ hymn that we find in the second chapter of this letter. Just as a quick recap, we've used this letter as a guide throughout the entire Advent journey so far. This will be our last day to walk through it. We'll, we'll focus on something slightly different on Christmas Eve, but this has been a great way for us to center in on the essence of the gospel and the fullness of what the Christmas season means. 
And just as a recap, when we started this second chapter in Philippians, we were drawn once again to this call towards humility, right? This invitation to humble ourselves that then pointed to Jesus as the chief example of that humility. And over the next several verses, we saw the descent of Christ. Remember we talked about that last time, right? That Jesus starts in the nature of God, but then he, what does he do? He takes on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, right? It's this descent that exemplifies and portrays his humility, right? And we see that laid out then to arrive at verses 9 through 11, which then takes us out of the depths of his descent and his humility and into an exaltation. And that's going to be our focus today, verses 9 through 11 and the exaltation of Christ. So we're going to read 5 through 11, but pay particular attention to verses 9 through 11 as we conclude this section. Starting in verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so those last two verses, verses, well, really three verses, 9, 10, and 11, are going to be what we fixate on this morning. And I want you to see how it begins with that word, therefore which is always an indicator in the scripture that now there is a conclusion that's being drawn from what was just stated. So, so Paul is arriving at this place where he said, okay, because of this humility, because of this descent, because of this example of Christ, therefore God exalted him. This is the result of that life. This is the result of that self-sacrifice. This is what comes from the fruition of that humility. Jesus is exalted. And in that declaration and in that reversal, we're reminded of one of the primary economies of the kingdom, right? One of the primary ways in which this gospel functions is this paradoxical nature of the message of hope, right? That if you are humbled yourself, you're going to be exalted, right? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Whoever is first will be made last. Whoever is last will be made first. Time and time again, When we dive into the gospel, we see these paradoxical truths that show us this incredible reversal for those who follow Christ. Better to give than to receive. Whoever loses their life will find it. This is how the kingdom functions. And we see that clearly declared here in this this Christ hymn that says, because of this humility, it leads to exaltation. Now, I want us to recognize how drastically different that is than the mantras and the values and the economies of our culture. Right? What, what does our culture tell us? Right? It's, it's a completely different message. It's survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. The rich get richer. Try harder. You do you. Right? Everything about success and exaltation is on your shoulders and your achievement and your effort. It's a completely different message. And so part of what we see by looking at this This reversal for Jesus is that we can embrace humility, we can embrace self-denial and suffering and challenges and hardship and all those things because we know it ultimately leads to victory. And that victory is on clear display through Jesus. And that gives us an avenue to living a life that's marked with joy. 
Because what I can know then is that no matter what I go through in life, no matter my circumstances, no matter my difficulties or my challenges, I know that if I choose servanthood and if I choose humility, it will one day result in victory and glory. And I have that assurance because I can look at Christ. And now that doesn't mean that I'm going to experience this victory and and necessarily an answer to some of those struggles in this life. It might mean that you have to wait to the life that is to come. But if you can trust that and believe in that, you can have the assurance that it will ultimately give way to victory. And what a beautiful hope. Right now, in addition to this exaltation, I want us to recognize the extent to which Jesus exalted is exalted. That word could also be translated as he was super exalted. <laughs> he was put to the highest position, given the supreme authority. There is nothing higher than the status to which is given to Jesus. And, and look at how that is portrayed or how it's explained. It's, it's brought into this discussion of the name. Right? So, so the name of Jesus becomes incredibly significant. And one of the things we always have to recognize whenever we're talking about naming in the scriptures is that it meant so much more in biblical times than it does for us. Right? To pick a name for someone was to speak to their identity, to speak to their character, to speak to their nature. Right? It wasn't just a title that was ascribed to someone. And so to offer someone a name spoke to all those different things. And so now the name of Jesus carries a new weight, a new significance. And what is that weight that is attributed to this name according to this section of Scripture? Lord. Now I want us to recognize what is likely being suggested here. This is probably drawing the audience back into an understanding of God's divine name as it was revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. Right? You remember that moment? When Moses is having that incredible interaction with God and he's being commissioned to go back to Egypt and he says, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. And he reveals his divine name. So sacred was this name that the Jews refused to even utter it. It's Yahweh. That name, this divine name, which includes this insinuation of God's lordship, his sovereignty, the Lord is now being shared with Jesus. At the name of Jesus, we now equate and understand this divine status of lordship. And I want you to understand that it wasn't just like he got a new title. It wasn't just that he got a new label. His very nature, his very identity, his very character reflects the divine lordship of God. It's an incredible status of his sovereignty. It was an incredible understanding of his exaltation and his lordship, which is why one of the earliest Christian formulas that researchers kind of uh, arrived at or determined is that one of the first things Christians began to say was some sort of formulaic rhythm in their worship was this affirmation that Jesus is the Lord. That's why we still say it with every baptism, right? That, that was a fundamental aspect to the gospel is to recognize the lordship of Christ. Do you? Not just in word, but indeed, like do you live your life with the full understanding that Jesus has that sort of authority and supremacy? Like do we, do we reflect that in what we say and what we do and how we live and how we dream? Do you live with that understanding with the lordship of Christ? I often bring this question up because in many ways it speaks to my own personal testimony because I think one of the pitfalls that we have in society and in our culture One of the traps we fall into is that we'll cozy up real close to Jesus as Savior, but we struggle to see him as Lord. 
I know it was my journey, right? Like I first began to get introduced to this gospel. I'm like, man, ask him into my heart and I get heaven, sign me up, I'm in. I'll take saving. And that's how I lived most of my life. I had Jesus as Savior, I did not have him as Lord. And then when I was 16, I realized, well, that's actually kind of an impossibility. You can't have one without the other. To actually see him as Savior is to see him as Lord, and to see him as Lord leads to surrender, leads to obedience, it leads to life change. And a lot of times, that's exactly where we struggle. Man, we want the easy part, we want the grace, but we don't want the Lordship. And so is he Lord of your life? Do you live with that sort of obedience, that sort of understanding in every season, in every circumstance? Because if he's not the Lord of your life, then what is? Something else is in his place. And more often than not, it's ourselves, right? Because that allows us to maintain that level of authority and control and an ability to navigate and determine everything that we want for ourselves. But the Bible consistently calls us to surrender those things and to see Jesus as Lord, to acknowledge him as Lord, which is another part of this hymn that I really love is the description of how we are called to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. What is it? To, to every knee bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see a way in which we affirm the lordship of Jesus through the spirit of worship of bended knee and confessing tongues. Right? You see that, that idea of every knee being bowed means to kneel in submission and in worship. That word to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord means to confess or to admit, right? We, we proclaim it with our words, we, we submit to it with our posture, and we worship him as Lord. Now when you read that portrayal in Philippians 2, I think it's, it's clearly pointing to the inevitability of that moment, right? I, I really do think it's pointing to kind of this culmination of the ages where we really kind of all come before Christ and there's that judgment day, that moment where we all acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, right? Every, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth, the inevitability of his lordship, it cannot be denied, right? So that, that is, to me, what is really kind of being pointed here, but I wanna make sure you understand that doesn't imply a universal salvation, right? That doesn't mean we all get to get there. What, the, the point is, is that whether you acknowledge his lordship willingly or unwillingly, it will happen, it won't be up for discussion. It won't be debated. You cannot deny the lordship of Jesus. And so we should, in this life, ask ourselves, do I acknowledge that lordship in my life? Am I on the course of willingly demonstrating that sort of worship through confessing with my mouth in a posture and a lifestyle that demonstrates that sort of submission? Or am I more on a path of unwillingly acknowledging his lordship? Do you see him as lord in your life? When we see the lordship of Jesus, I wanna make sure we understand what that really does to us internally and kind of the motivation there and, and the origins of that sort of worship. And I think the best way to see that is by looking at that last phrase of this hymn that when you see knees being bowed and when you hear tongues confessing, it is to the glory of God the Father. I think that's really important, that it demonstrates God as Father. Right, that our, our submission, our worship, his lordship is seen through the lens of that sort of a relationship. I came across a quote in my studies. It was by a scholar whose last name is, is Ritterboss and wrote uh, this work called, it's simply entitled Theology. And he speaks to how the lordship of Jesus reveals the fatherhood of God. Let me, let me share with you his perspective. He says, the lordship of Christ is therefore within the ambit of the divine glory 
And far from masking it, it actually reveals it. And this ultimate revelation is founded on the fatherhood of God. So his main point, that premise right there, is that to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus reveals the fatherhood of God. The true glory of God is to be the father, the father of Christ in the first place, but also through him of the entire creation. The hymn shows us that history could have consisted of relationships merely of power, but instead it culminates with the revelation of a fatherhood inspiring confidence and love. All right, so this to me is critical, right? Because when we recognize that our worship and our acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus is rooted in the fatherhood of God, we find a life that is marked with joy rather than fear. Right, because it could be that relationships, especially relationship with God, with our creator, was really driven by power and supremacy and dominion. And when we worship in that sort of a relationship, it more often than not is rooted in fear. Fear of, of judgment, fear of punishment. But instead, what we find with God is a father. A father who inspires love. A father who brings confidence and forgiveness and grace, so our worship in that relationship is rooted in joy because we have a father. And what an incredible way to see our God. That's why the exaltation of Jesus is so important. It's not just to see him as supreme, but to see him rightly in his supremacy and the way that it portrays a loving God the Father. So that's the exaltation that you find In verses 9 through 11, it brings this really powerful question to the forefront, right? Do we recognize the lordship of Jesus? Does it help speak to a life that's marked with joy rather than fear? So I want to bring that discussion, I want to bring that picture that we just found from Philippians 2 into the Christmas story. Because Christmas, to me, forces us to ask that same question with a very unique perspective, right? Because can we just be honest for a moment, It's easy to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus at Easter, much more difficult at Christmas. Here's what I mean by that. Stand before the cross, stand before the empty tomb, hear the declaration of a resurrection and the message and the power of Pentecost, and absolutely you want to affirm that this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. It's undeniable. The power is on full display. Christmas, very different. It's a very different setting, very different story. To me, the question that Christmas brings in is, are you willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord even when it doesn't make sense? Let's explore that a little bit further. Let's consider two of the main responses to the birth of Jesus by looking at the shepherds and the magi this morning. All right, so we've already talked about the declaration that came to the shepherds. The angels appear and they say, fear not, I bring you news that will cause great joy. What is that news, right? That there's a child that's been born. He is Savior. He is Messiah. He is Lord. Imagine being a shepherd and hearing that declaration. Wouldn't your heart just be ecstatic? This is awesome. A Savior's been born. A Lord is here. Where can I go to find him? Wouldn't you want to know? In what palace can he be found? With what reception? Where are all the people gathered to hear and to see this birth? But what does the angel say? Here's the sign for you. This child is going to be wrapped in clothes and laid in a feeding trough. And that's exactly how it would have been heard. Like we've taken the word manger and we've romanticized it. 
We've put it in songs, we've made it part of our productions, and it's this symbol of peace and serenity and glory and majesty. What's the sign? This Lord, this king, is going to be laid in an animal's feeding trough. That doesn't make sense. Doesn't make any sense. But they believed. And so they went. They wanted to go see. And so they walk into this stable, and what do they find? They don't know these people. They don't know Mary and Joseph. Clearly, it's not a family of any nobility or power. It's not a family from wealth and and any sort of status, given their circumstances. And what do they find? They find a baby. They have no idea who this child is going to become and what he's going to do. No clue. Right? Anytime a child is born, parents and friends can look on that child and hope and dream and have plans and visions for the future, but you don't know. You don't know what they're going to become. So these shepherds, they come, they see this child. They have no clue what's in his future. My point is this. They're not coming and beholding some man that just healed a blind man. They're not coming to some man that just fed 5,000. They have no idea what's in store for his future, and they still believed. It didn't make sense. But they still trusted, and they declared his lordship before the promises were fulfilled, not after. What a faith. And they spread word. (laughs) They confessed with their mouths what had happened. The Magi, a very similar story, right? Magi means to be of the Persian priestly class. They were from a different country. These were not biblical scholars. They didn't have that sort of credibility or that sort of reputation with the Jews, right? In fact, the Bible tells us they studied the stars. They were ancient astrologers. Imagine their experience. That star first appears in the sky, and what do they determine? A king has been born. That doesn't make sense. But they believed it to the extent that they were willing to get up and leave their country and travel a great distance. It took them years before arriving there because they believed so firmly that a true king had been born. So they arrive, and what do they do? They go to the existing king. No, no real clue, no real understanding of just how vicious and vile that king really was. And they come and say, hey, we've heard a new king has been born. Tell us where to go find him. How was that received by Herod? It wasn't well received. And you know what's easy to miss when we read the Christmas story is that it's not just that Herod was bothered. It says all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Disturbed means to be distressed, to be confused, to incite a riot. Nobody welcomed the message of the Magi. Nobody was excited to hear this. They were all disturbed by it. So Herod concocts this plan. He brings in the scholars and says, okay, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Well, it's going to be in Bethlehem. He goes, okay, I'm going to send them there. You guys go check out Bethlehem. Let me know when you find him. And we know what his scheme is, right? We know that it's ultimately going to cost these wise men their lives and potentially this child as well. And so they're pursuing this in the midst of their own threats, their own jeopardies far from country. These foreigners are coming in. And they're the ones that are looking for this king. No one else is looking for him. And what do they find? They find something very similar that the shepherds find. They don't walk into a palace or some kingly estate. They don't walk into some demonstration of royalty. They come to a carpenter's home. They see a mother and a child. They don't know him. They don't know their story. They know nothing about him. And what do they do? They worship. And they give treasures. 
gold and perfumes, man, they just pour out in their worship to this child, and they had no idea what he was going to do. They were not standing at the foot of the cross. They were not standing at the empty tomb. They had no idea what would be achieved, and yet they still believed before the promises were fulfilled. Didn't make sense. They saw him as Lord. One other element to the whole interaction with the shepherds and the magi at the Christmas season that to me is very striking is to recognize the absence of crowds at the Christmas story. Crowds were so fundamental to Jesus' ministry, were they not? Time and time again, we see crowds following Jesus, right? We see them when he's doing healings. We see him when he's doing teachings, when he's feeding the masses, right? Oftentimes, we see crowds coming to Jesus, but not so at Christmas. Now, that should stand out to us for a couple of reasons, because if we once again consider, like, the economy of culture and the things that we often use to, to validate certain things and that give us a certain credibility in how we make decisions, we are very influenced by the masses, are we not? We're constantly making decisions based on crowds. And just the other day, we're having a staff meeting about Hope Was Born, and we're planning all the logistics, and we realize, you know what, we probably need some walkie-talkies. And so April gets her computer out, Kathy gets her computer out, we start searching on Amazon, walkie-talkies. And what do you look for when you're trying to buy a product? Ratings. Right? You want to see how many stars it's got, but you don't just look at the stars, right? You're looking at how many reviews, right? Because a, a five-star rating with one review is not nearly as credible as a five-star rating with 3,000 reviews. And so what's the reason, right? Well, more people have bought this one. It's got to be better. We're constantly making decisions based on crowds. They constantly allow us to, to validate certain things. Man, if we're trying to determine an event to go to, a conference to go to, a, a movie to see, a school to attend, a church, well, if the crowds are there, it must be right. We're constantly doing that. Why is that? I came across this article in, in Psychology Today that I thought had a really good observation, at least two points that I would share with you for us to consider this morning. Here's, here's one way it's presented. It says, for us, popular is good. Following the crowd allows us to function in a complicated environment. Most of us don't have time to increase our knowledge of all merchandise and research every advertised item to measure its usefulness. Instead, we rely on popularity. If everyone else is buying something, the reasoning goes, there's a good chance the item is worth our attention. There's reason number one. It helps us not think. I don't have time to think critically about this. I don't have time to research this, so if the masses like it, I probably should too. That's one reason. The article continues, it quotes uh, Julia Coltis, who's a researcher at the University of Exodus. She says, for an individual joining a group, copying the behavior of the majority would then be sensible, adaptive behavior. A conformist tendency would facilitate acceptance into the group and would probably lead to survival. Right, what that point is making is that a lot of times we adapt to the group behavior because we see it as a survival instinct, right? If I'm accepted by the group, I'm protected by the group. And so we make decisions for our own benefit, for our own security, for our own peace of mind. Bring that mind mentality, that mindset back into the crowds that we see with Jesus, right? And so much of that way of thinking is really predicated upon fear because what are those common denominators with fear? Man, when I'm driven by fear, I'm focused on self. Things that I have, things that I don't have, things that I need, things that I'm worried about. When I'm focused on joy, I'm thinking about things bigger than myself, a plan that goes beyond me. So when I'm living in the crowds, 
It allows me to make decisions that benefit myself or maintain that survival. So these crowds come to Jesus because he's performing healings. They come to Jesus because he's, he's feeding the masses. They come to Jesus because he's performing miracles. Right? That's why they're there. And then what happens? He gets arrested, and where do the crowds go? They disappear. And they offer a new tomb, a new word to Jesus. Man, they, they all of a sudden say, well, if I'm associated with this guy, that threatens my safety. That threatens my stability. That threatens my comfort. And so their cries go from Hosanna to crucifying. Change. We're just like them. And if you come to Jesus because of crowds, guess what? When the crowds leave him, so will you. Because we don't want to think about it. We want to survive. Right? And so we're constantly influenced by, by the crowds and the masses, which is what makes Christmas so remarkable. Listen, there's no mistake, y'all. The resurrection would have went viral. Right? Like empty tomb, Proclaiming that this guy's alive again, that would have spread like wildfire. Pentecost, wide responses. Christmas, no. Because who noticed? Five people, six people, over the span of a couple years. And they were shepherds who were often ostracized and foreigners. That's who knew. There were no crowds, there were no masses. And yet these magi, these shepherds came and they believed when no one else did. That's faith. That's trust. Pretty remarkable when you think about it. Which leads us to kind of that main question, right? What about us? What kind of faith do we have? When we begin to figure out if our life is more marked by fear or joy, it really does kind of help you evaluate your faith. Because a lot of times we can make faith transactional, right? We, we come to God, we come to Jesus, and we say, well, prove yourself. Do something for me. Heal this, provide this, perform this sign, Whatever our list of needs may be, we bring them and we present this transactional nature. And if he meets it, then we'll follow. Fulfill these promises and I'll be loyal. And that's often how we begin to build this relationship. But if we really look closely, a lot of that's a relationship that's still built on fear. Fear of not having those prayers answered. Fear of not having those needs met. Joy. Joy is a different kind of faith. Joy is a faith that comes to Jesus and worships him not because of what he has done or what he might do for you, but because of who he is. And believing that even when it doesn't make sense. I wonder how many of us are in that sort of situation in life. You know those moments when life doesn't make sense? Right, those moments where you can't understand God's plan, you feel distant, you can't sense his presence, one bad thing happens after the other, you're confused, there's doubts, it just doesn't make sense. And if you're in that season, or whenever you encounter a season like that, I guarantee you, you will find fear and joy 
closely beside one another. Which one will you choose? How will you let your life be defined? Will you navigate those circumstances with that fearful trepidation or that joy that trusts something bigger than yourself? My hope is that when we gather around the manger scene and we come into the Christmas season, we bring in our lives, and even if they don't make sense and we can't understand it, we would hear the words of the angel once again telling us, fear not, to have good news that will bring great joy. The Magi were overjoyed in this journey because they believed. They believe this good news. What is that good news? Good news is that a Savior is born. He is the Lord, and he's been given a name, a name that is beautiful, that is wonderful, that is powerful, a name that saves and redeems and restores and tells you no matter what you face, fear not, for joy is coming. May it mark our lives as it has marked so many others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we confess so many times that we need you. So many times that we fail to see through the lens of joy, but rather, Father, we live our lives predicated upon fear. Father, that we create a relationship with you that is transactional, that is emotional, that is contingent upon our circumstances. So, Father, help us to confess that, acknowledge it, and set it aside. Help us to come once again to this Christmas season and learn from this incredible story. Help us to learn from these shepherds and these magi from the east who believed in you, Father, even when it didn't make sense, who trusted in your promises even before they were fulfilled, who worshipped you, Father, before anything you had done, not because of what they could see or what they might get, but because of who you are. Father, help us to join with them with bended knee and confessing tongues. Father, help our lives to be a testimony that we don't need to live in fear, but that we can truly offer ourselves as a response and a beacon of joy. We trust you. No matter the circumstances, no matter the reasons, no matter what may be happening around us, because of who you are, because you're a loving Father. And it's our joy to worship you. Thank you, Father, that you've given us a name that we can call upon, a name that doesn't just come to a manger but goes to a cross and gives us the strength to be joyful in all circumstances. We worship you, Father. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.